Your word, you teach it, we want to live it. We want to apply it. We want to go out there and be a witness in it. And really just take it and understand it, Lord. To really understand what you're saying and what you're doing here. And to really go out and just stop and say, Lord, it's all about you and your name. Amen. The way I do messages out here for some of those that may not know, may not care, is when I get done with Wednesday, I start working on Sundays on Thursday. And so tomorrow I'll start working on Sunday's message, really praying over it, starting to study it out, work on that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then once Sunday's done, I start working on Wednesdays. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not looking at what's going on in Proverbs during any time of the week or First John. I'm always reading it, always. But to really start getting into taking notes and saying, Lord, what do you really want to say? I usually start that. So I started Sunday taking notes here for First John chapter 2, and I'm going through the notes. And I was getting through a good chunk of chapter 2 with it. There's some great stuff coming up. I, I just can't wait to get to it. Verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. That's a powerful verse. And we're getting to some stuff later on about love and loving your brother and walking in light. And that's, that was the emphasis of the message. So then I came back and I started working on some more. And I couldn't get past verse 2. So we're only going to do two verses tonight. Now, a lot of times when, when I teach, I, I've always believed the emphasis to me is, number one, making sure if someone's here that's not saved that the gospel's presented. I, I just believe that's vitally important to make sure that we understand heaven, hell, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And then I want to say, if you are here and you are saved, I want to see you go deeper in your walk in relationship with Christ. So we usually try to really encourage practical application, evangelism, getting out there in service, etc. But every now and then we get a message like tonight where, I'm just going to be honest with you, there's not a lot of practical application tonight. This is one of those messages, it's a lot of theology. And I love studying theology. Theology is the study of God. I think it's really important for us, when we look at a verse, like verse 2, and we see a word that says propitiation. That's not a word that we use in most daily language. In fact, I'm just trying to think of even a way to use that where you could go impress somebody tomorrow at work, at home, where you're at the dining room table and say, please pass the propitiation. It just, there's no way. It doesn't. That is, that is a theology word. It's kind of like righteousness, advocate. And you see all these words tonight. You have advocate, you have righteous, you have propitiation. And it's important to stop and really understand that because for you, and this is what I really think, when you really understand the theology of it, it becomes applicable to your life. Because you really stop and say, God, I understand what you're trying to tell me here. So with that being said, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, you've got to remember, and you hear me say this all the time, in the original book, there was no chapter breaks, there was no verses. And it would flow, I think, a whole lot better if we would just go back to verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It flows so nicely. If you weren't with us last week, we started out with a slide that had the reasons why John wrote this book through the Spirit. 
And one of the reasons is verse 2, excuse me, verse 1 in chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of sinning. I don't want to sin anymore. I mean, the longer I walk with the Lord and the more I understand Him and His grace and His mercy, I mean, I get the whole idea that I am forgiven as far as the east is from the west and it's gone, it's forgotten, it's thrown into the depths of the ocean. But there's a part of me that's like, oh, Lord, I, just, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of failing. I, I'm tired of it. And I, and I think about heaven and I think about the joy of perfect health, perfect peace. But there's also the joy of, I'm not going to sin again. And I'm really looking forward to that. So anytime I see a verse like this, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Oh, tell me about it. I'm not preaching some type of supernatural that you will become so sanctified that you won't sin. There are some denominations that teach that and believe that. That's not biblical. But we're saying is, okay, what does this happen now? So the goal is, I don't want to sin. But I know I'm going to. That's why there's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Powerful verse. If it weren't with us last week, go back, listen to it online, grab a copy of the CD, because that is so vital to know. But look what it says right here. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate. It's the same word used in John 14, 15, and 16 when Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the helper. So that's, that's quite the little theological thing right there, too. If you'd like to see these dots connected, the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit is the same word used to describe Jesus. So therefore, if we believe Jesus is God, it also shows us from a Greek perspective that they believe the Holy Spirit is God. Now, you may stop and say, okay, what's the big deal of that? Trust me, the more you walk in this world, you're going to run into false religion and false things. It's nice to know those little things. The same word describes the Holy Spirit in Jesus. So, Jesus is our advocate, but yet he's the helper. The Holy Spirit is in John 14, 15, 16. Please remember this. When you are born again and saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It's the most amazing gift you can ever imagine. God himself takes up residence in you. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because God's always with us in the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, when the Holy Spirit's always with us, I'm always empowered, I can always be led, I can always be encouraged, because that's the helper's job. Same word, but it's translated differently here. An advocate. See, that word for helper, advocate, is also a legal term, and it literally means defense lawyer. So if you wanted to read this literally, my little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You ever think about that? Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. Why do we need a defense attorney? Go to Zechariah chapter 3, please. Zechariah chapter 3. We need a defense attorney because there's this heavenly court scene going on that we don't see. God the Father is the judge. He is righteous. He, he follows the rules. The rules are if you sin, you go to hell. That, that's the rule. He can't let anybody into heaven who is a sinner. He can't. And so you have God the Father sitting up on his throne, being the righteous judge. But then there's this really interesting verse in Revelation 12, which you don't need to go there because you're going to Zechariah 3, where it describes one of the roles of Satan. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. People wonder what Satan's doing. 
He is standing before God the Father, constantly making accusations against us. Constantly. What do those accusations look like? We've got a tiny little glimpse here in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a fascinating book. If you like a book that's got a little bit of a story, a little bit of prophecy, it's got end times, it's got history, Zechariah is for you. It's a short little book, only 14 chapters, and these chapters are just filled with so much stuff. A little bit of background going on here, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet that's raised up. They were trying to rebuild the temple. They came back from Babylon, and they started the temple, and then they quit. Got too hard, got too difficult. So about 15 years elapsed. And so what happens is God raises up Joshua and Zerubbabel, which is one of the best Bible names. If anybody here is expecting and you're just looking for a good, powerful male name, Zerubbabel. I'm just telling you right now. Think about it. So they have Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the um, high priest. Zerubbabel is the governor. So these are the two people there. So these people God has raised up to finish the temple. This is a big deal. If you remember this from our studies in Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what's going on. They laid the foundation, but they didn't finish it. So they're going to use Joshua, the high priest here, as a spiritual authority to kind of get the people going. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. See, it goes with Revelation 12. What's the enemy doing right now? You know, every now and then you hear people throw out this little comment about Satan made me do it. You know what? I'm not that important. I really doubt of these 7 billion people in the world, the enemy is saying, i got to keep an eye on James. (laughs) He's the one. No, I don't think so. The heavenly scene shows us that you have God the Father, the righteous judge, and then you have Satan constantly making accusations against us. So he's against right here Joshua. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? See, what is Satan saying? See, we don't really know. We know a little bit if you study out the beginning of the book of Job. Because Satan shows up in heaven again. And God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's quite the guy. And so therefore, Satan says he's only so good to use because you're good to him. And that's how Job starts out. Now it's kind of interesting here. God describes Joshua as a brand plucked from the fire. Now, we're in summer campfire season, quickly coming to a close. If you look at the leftover campfire after the fire is done, you've got these little black pieces of wood that are absolutely worthless. If you pick it up, it kind of crumbles, gets all over your clothes and your hands. You can't really use them to start another fire. You can't use them to build anything. They're really worthless. That's how your loving Heavenly Father describes you. You're worthless. And God says, I still want you. So God acknowledges acknowledges the fact that I'm really not bringing anything to the table. In verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, was standing before the angel. That's me. Isaiah 64, 6. Even our best works are like filthy garments, the Bible says. On your best day, you're still an unholy mess. Just remember that. Now, I'm going to build us up here at the end, so don't think I'm tearing us down. This is what God says. I am standing in filthy garments. Verse 4, then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. That's a picture of God taking away our sin. 
That's a picture of God acknowledging the fact that I am filthy in sin and I am a worthless brand left from the fire that's nothing. And God says, I know you're nothing. I will remove. Please note verse 4. I have removed your iniquity from you. I didn't do it. And you you would think, I've been teaching for 22 years. You would think I shouldn't have to emphasize that point. It still creeps in. This idea of almost a self-righteous earn your salvation type thing. Well, look how much I prayed. Look at how many times I went to church. Look at how much I read. Look at the religious hoops I've jumped through, the sacraments, etc. No. I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. That's what's going on in heaven. God the Father, who is the righteous judge, Satan constantly making accusations... So now jump back to 1 John chapter 2. This is why we need a defense attorney. This is why we need an advocate with the Father. Because as Satan makes accusations and says, that's your kid? He's saved? You're going to let James in. Did you just hear what he said? Did you just see how he treated his wife? Did you just see what he said to his kids? Do you see his laziness? Do you see his thoughts? And that's who you're going to let in. And the righteous judge has to stop and say, you're right. I am perfectly righteous. I cannot let James in to heaven in any way whatsoever because he is full of filthy garments and his best holy acts are still unrighteous. And Romans 3, no one who seeks God, no one does good. You're right. But then the advocate, the defense attorney, raises his hand and says, oh, I got that one covered. I got that one covered. Don't you remember? It is finished on the cross. I got that covered. And this is the scene that plays out in heaven again and again and again. The enemy making accusations. God the Father who is righteous listening. And then the advocate, the defense attorney steps in and says, I got that covered. I got that covered. How can he have it covered? Because look, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. Keep your hand here. I want you to go for one verse because it's that important. 2 Corinthians 5, please. 2 Corinthians 5. Remember, it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is righteous. Never sinned. Never did anything. And remember, righteous is just a fancy word that means to be made right. He is right in all things. And not like right, like he got the right answer. He is right. Righteous. Sinless. Perfect. I'm not. How can I who am sin become righteous? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's an important verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus actually takes his righteousness and makes me righteous. I want you to really understand this. Because when you really start to get this, you're getting theology now of I am a sinner, but I have become right through Christ. See, we know it. Oh, yeah, yeah, believe in Jesus and I'm saved. Yeah, he takes away my sins. But do you really get it? Righteous God took sin on him to make sinful man Righteous. Righteousness became sin so that way sin could become righteous. 
It's an amazing thing. And now I get the heavenly scene. I get the defense attorney. I get the righteous God, the Father, who says I can't let sin in. I get Satan. And I'm not complimenting him. This is one of the few times Satan doesn't have to lie. Yeah, God, look at their sin. And the defense attorney says, I have this covered. It is finished. And now we get to verse 2. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And now we're going to get into what the word propitiation means. But before we get into that, any quick questions, comments on what we've covered here thus far? I want to make sure that groundwork is laid before we get into propitiation. Kathy. Yeah, that's what you mean. I got this, Dad. Yeah. There's quite the relationship. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. You, you have a defense attorney at the right hand of God. That's an amazing thing to think about. So when the enemy wants to come and remind you that no one cares, no one understands, no one loves, that's just a lie from the pit of hell. You have an advocate, a defense attorney, before God. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you that's the helper. That's an amazing thing. And he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. Anybody else got anything here? All right, so now we need to get the next word. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation. Some of your translations may say atoning sacrifice. Appeasement. It's a big, fancy word that is really, really important. Because Christ is our propitiation. That's not a word we use a whole awful lot. And to be quite honest, it's maybe a word we fully don't understand. Romans 3 says this. Actually, go with me. Go to Romans 3 with me. I want you guys to see it, mark it. I want you to connect these dots with me. I want you to go home thinking about this. I am sin that is now made righteous. Because the righteous man became sin. And he became the propitiation for me. And now we get to define what that means. And we're going to actually get a few verses here in Romans 3 because it's good to get the full context. Romans 3 would start in 22. Remember, righteousness means to be made right. I'm oversimplifying it, but just keep that in the back of your mind. So, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. Okay, so just setting the scene in 22. God's righteousness comes to us Because we believe in what Jesus Christ did. So we got 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I need this righteousness because I'm a sinner. I just, you got to accept that. You're a sinner. You're a sinner by birth. You're a sinner by choice. You're a sinner by living in this world. You're a sinner. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified just as if I never sinned. So just as if I've never sinned, by His grace, grace just means gift. It's a gift that has been redeemed through Christ Jesus. Redemption, imagine using a coupon. You redeem the coupon. So Christ is saying here that I have justified you freely by the free gift of Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Keep 25 in mind there. That's a really important part. God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier, one who has faith in Jesus. 
So now we get more information here. Verse 25, propitiation by Christ's blood because sins had been passed over. Okay, now go with me to uh, Leviticus, please. 16. Propitiation means appeasement. It means atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ appeased the penalty of sin. You know what it means to appease somebody? They're angry, they're upset. They've been appeased. Now, how can you appease them? You know, we got a couple little 13-month-old girls at home right now. It's really easy to appease them. Give them the TV remote. Everything's happy. They're just happy. With um, the five boys, I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb. I think with all five, I can still appease them with candy. It's really easy. You know, it really is. like one piece of gum, and everybody's happy. As people get older, it's harder to appease. Now, we may not use the word that way. If you and your spouse are not getting along, I don't think you can go to your spouse and say, Honey, what appeasement can I use right now to make you happy? No, you don't use that word. I mean, maybe, there you go. There's finally the setting you can use. The next time you have a fight with your spouse, I would like to bring up appreciation to our marriage. See if they respond to that. Because you're really trying to be holy and biblical at that time. But you're trying to appease. Jesus Christ appeased the penalty of sin. I think we forget this. We serve God who is holy, just, and perfect. And guess what? He is angry at sin. We forget this. He hates sin. He loves you, but he hates sin. And until we are made right in Jesus, righteousness, we are at war with God. He is angry at our sin. And so now you start to see propitiation. God, who is angry, is appeased through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What other appeasement are you going to bring to him? How many sacraments can you do? How much reading can you do? How much prayer can you do? How much communion can you do? How much animals can you kill to appease God's righteousness. Nothing. That's why all of our works are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. So he is only appeased through Christ. Now, if you remember what we read in Romans chapter 3, he covered sins. See, sins were not appeased until Jesus Christ died on the cross. That means everything that happened in the Old Testament, they were only covering sin. That's all they were doing. They, they, sins weren't being taken care of. It was just a covering and that's why you have all these sacrifices. And that's why people sometimes read this type of stuff and say, what is all the purpose of the blood and the death? Someone has to take care of this sin. David wrote in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David said, my sin is covered. Well, the greatest example of the covering of sin is Leviticus 16. It's the Day of Atonement. Coming up in the fall, known as Yom Kippur, Kippur is a Hebrew word that means to cover. Because now this is where it gets interesting. When we just read in Romans 3.25, some of your Bibles may translate it this way, that Jesus was our propitiation, that literally translates to mercy seat. i got a couple slides here I want to show you guys. Mercy seat. Okay. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. So as we're reading Leviticus 16... This is what the tabernacle would look like. It's kind of hard to see. But back in here is the Holy of Holies. Right there. So, daily activity here. Morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices. It would always smell like a barbecue. A lot of stuff going on. 
A lot of stuff going on in here. You got your menorah, you got your table, the showbread, altar of incense. They would change the bread every week. They would make sure the menorah is lit. Um, the incense represents prayers going up to God. All this stuff's going on. Tons of activity here. Little less activity here. Only priests can get in here and Levites, etc. Here, Holy of Holies. Huge veil. Huge veil. Veil that, if I remember correctly, it was 18 inches thick. So when this veil ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, it could not have been an accident. It was a miraculous work. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, high priest gets to go in here. Only day of the year that he gets to go in here. And he gets to do a propitiation for sin, an appeasement for sin on the mercy seat. Next slide, please. Because what's in here, this is the Ark of the Covenant, not the real one. This is the Ark. This right here is the mercy seat. Okay? So that's in the Holy of Holies. So when you are reading in Romans 3.25 that Jesus Christ is your propitiation, it literally is saying, Jesus Christ is your mercy seat. That doesn't mean anything to us. But if you're a Jewish, it would. If you were Jewish and someone came up and said, Jesus is your mercy seat, that's a big deal. Why is this the big deal? Leviticus 16, please follow along with me. Day of Atonement, once a year in the fall, high priest only. What happens here? Uh, verse 2, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die for or appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. That's pretty impressive. God chose between those two cherubim right there to appear. He could have appeared anywhere he wanted in the world. He could have said, this is how I want sins to be taken care of. He chose right there. He chose the mercy seat. So when Jesus is our mercy seat, this is a big deal. Verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and with linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments, therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. Please note verse 4, the purpose of the linen. Typically the high priest looked amazing. I mean, colorful and bright. He's got the ephod. He's got all the jewels on. He's got the hat. He's got everything. Day of Atonement, he strips down to plain clothes. Why? Because he's not bringing anything to the table. He's a sinner. He's not going in his priestly garb looking beautiful. He is going in as a humble servant representing the entire nation of Israel to have their sins be covered. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, two goats, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Keep this in your mind. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. This is the problem with the Old Testament. High priest needs to go take care of the sins of the people. Well, he's got sin himself. So he has to first offer a sacrifice for himself before he can even go in. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle in the meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Two goats. One gets sacrificed, one gets free. Stay with me. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer as a sin offering. So you're chosen to be the Lord's, you're sacrificed. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. See, what happens is the one goat's killed to represent your sin being taken care of. The other goat, we're going to get to this in a little bit, Aaron comes out, places his hand 
places his hands. Let's just jump ahead, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and they shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. That goat then is thrown into the wilderness to represent your sins being taken away. Scapegoat. And this is a verse that just keeps on going and going with this idea. You guys know some of these passages. Psalm 103, verse 12, that your sins as far as the east is from the west. And you guys can think of a globe. East never touches west. Every time I teach this verse with my kids, I got one of my kids that says, they touch. No, they don't. They touch. No, they don't. So we have to get it on actual globe. East never touches west. West never touches east. But if God would have said north to south, they touch. Just trust me, east and west don't touch. Don't make me get the globe out. So they don't touch. They don't touch. Remember what it says in in, uh, Micah, that he threw your sins into the depths of the ocean. You can't get them back. What a beautiful picture of your sin disappearing. It just runs away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Jewish tradition teaches us a couple things on this. First off, they would have a guy standing on a hill watching the goat, and when the goat couldn't be seen anymore, he would turn around and tell everybody, and there would be a huge party. Because their sins are gone. Gone. The next time you sin, and you confess that sin, repent of that sin, forsake that sin, rebuke that sin, Please remember the scapegoat. It's gone. It doesn't come back to the camp. Some of you guys, you say you're sorry and you can't forgive yourself. And you just keep thinking about what I did and I can't believe I did it. God's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. If you remember our our Jewish friend that we support, Ephraim, that has a church over in Israel that's come out to church here a couple times to share. I was with breakfast with them one time. We started talking about the scapegoat. And he said, it's a Jewish tradition. That what they would do, this is not in the Bible, so don't, this is not in the Bible. He said, but it was a Jewish tradition, what they would do, supposedly, is somebody would follow the goat out and take it and push it over a cliff and kill it. Because they were afraid the goat would come back into camp, and what a horrible symbolism that was. And so they said there was one person that would have to follow the goat and go push the goat over the cliff. Now... I don't know if Ephraim's telling me a story. He's kind of a character. But he said that was kind of a Jewish tradition. That is not in the Bible. But I'm just saying he did say that that's something they used to do. I find that very interesting. Because it would kind of destroy the symbolism of day two. Hey, the goat's back. You know, there's our sin. Our sin came back. So you want the goat to not come back. So what goes on now? So, verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he should take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of a sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He, he gets to go in the veil. One day, a year, one person, in the presence of God, because God says, I dwell above the mercy seat. He shall put the incense on that fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Remember, Jesus is our mercy seat. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Seven, and the Bible represents completeness, a complete sacrifice of sins. 
Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Once again, rewind the clock 2,000 years. You're a good Jew that loves Jehovah. And somebody says, you need to understand who Jesus is. Here's a letter that this guy Paul that used to be a Pharisee wrote and he really understands who Jesus is. Would you, would you take a moment to read it? And so you're reading it. Now granted you don't have Romans 3 verse 25 because that's not how it was back then. But as you're reading it and you get to Romans 3 all of a sudden you read Jesus is my propitiation which literally means Jesus is my mercy seat. As a good Jew you would stop and say they're talking about the day of atonement. They're saying that Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the blood that's accepted. That's why the word propitiation is so vitally important. We don't use it a lot, but when you read it and you see it, you've got to understand what it's saying. It is the appeasement of the righteousness of God, which we can't do in ourselves. It is literally the mercy seat where the presence of God dwelt and the blood was put on seven times to show a complete, complete taking care of the sin. And then the one goat is set free to represent your sins being as far as the east is from the west. Go with me to Micah 7, please. Micah 7. We're running out of time. If we could continue in Leviticus 16, you would read that the priest offers the sacrifice, etc. When he comes back, he changes his clothes. And he comes back now in the full garb of the priest. Because when he comes out, he represents the righteousness and the holiness of God. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God delights in forgiving us. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. That's amazing. If you've ever been to the ocean and you stand in front of the ocean and you ever just think about that. Something being dropped in the middle of the ocean, never to be seen or found again. That's what he does with our sins. Because why? He delights in mercy. He loves having compassion on us. He loves to forgive us. He loves being the mercy seat. Taking the blood, the presence of God, taking the sacrifice. Now let's finish this up. Go with me now to Hebrews, please. Hebrews 9. Hebrews is a great book, wonderful book of theology. It does a great job of teaching us how Christ has fulfilled the priestly requirements that we just read right there. We're going to do a very quick abridged version of this to finish up. Hebrews 9, verse um, 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Can you go back to the tabernacle picture for me, please? They go to the first part. We've talked about that. Menorah, showbread, altar of incense. But into the second part, Holy of Holies, far end, 
The high priest went alone once a year. We just read this, Leviticus 16. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Saying there wasn't a way to totally take care of sin yet. Verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. We're killing animals left and right in the Old Testament, but we're still not reaching perfection. What do we need to do? Same chapter, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the preferring of flesh, so if those animals could cover sin, not take care of it, cover it, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, no sin, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Chapter 10, please, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They can't take them away. They can only cover them. Please remember that verse we read, Psalm 32, verse 1. My sins are covered. Not taken away, they're only covered. So what needs to happen? Verse 11, same chapter. Actually, verse 10, same chapter. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There was one day of atonement through Jesus. He took care of it. He was the Passover lamb. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Never. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, sin offerings, all the offerings throughout the day, day of atonement offerings, there's blood all over the place, Passover. They can never take away sins. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's the difference between the Old Testament and Jesus. Daily sacrifices to cover sin. One sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, mercy seat a year, day of atonement to cover the sins of the nation. Every year repeated again and again. Jesus, one sacrifice, one time takes a seat. So it's done. That's propitiation. That's the mercy seat. That's the appeasement of God. So when you sin, when I sin, it's a picture of sin that has to be dealt with because there's a righteous God that has to, it has to be appeased. Propitiation, it has to be. Satan stands up there in heaven accusing us before God the Father. But there's a defense attorney, an advocate, a helper that says, I got it covered because I am righteousness. And I am righteousness that became sin, so sin could become righteousness. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. And Jesus says, I am the mercy seat. Because I am the presence of God. I am the blood. I am the sacrifice. I am everything that takes care of it. And that's what it means to have propitiation and appeasement. And I hope you get that. So that way now when it comes to our sin, we stop and say, Lord, I really understand what you did. It's not wrong to say, hey, Jesus forgives my sins. That's true, he does. How? Well, his blood. Yeah, but why? Well, because he's the sacrifice. Okay, yeah, but what does that mean? He's the mercy seat. He's the appeasement. He's righteousness. 
And when that all comes together, you start to really understand what it means now that Christ forgave you. And if you're here tonight and you're still struggling with this, please remember the scapegoat that ran away. The far as the east is from the west, dumped into the depths of the ocean, that's where your sins are at. God says they are appeased and taken care of through Christ. It is finished, and what a beautiful picture that is. Any final questions, comments here about any of this stuff that we covered tonight to make sure we're all on the same page? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, it says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So our perfection is not following us. It's following right. Amen. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more, forgive us more, nothing. I keep going back to Isaiah 64, 6. All of our works are like filthy rags. We are in heaven because of absolutely everything that Christ did. His grace, His mercy, His love. And that's so freeing. So freeing. We don't have to earn it, fight for it, whatever. Just believe it. Anybody else have anything here before he close up? All right. You guys stand with me, please. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, help us to really understand what you did on the cross, how that took care of sin. We, we, we understand it. I mean, we hear it. But Lord, help us to really go home chewing on this, that you are the mercy seat. Thank you, Lord, for what that means and represents. Thank you for being our advocate. Thank you for being our righteousness. Thank you for all you do, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Help us to go out now and take this and apply it to how we live. And Lord, to share it with the world, the blessing they can have through knowing you. In your name we pray this. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.